Hi, my name is Andre Gonoela. Welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast. I'm joined as always by my co-host Ryan Rosenthal. And today we're excited for a conversation with Dr. Kemet Dekleva, who is a psychiatrist psychiatrist in Dallas, Texas, and a senior fellow at the George H.W. Bush Foundation for U.S.-China Relations. Between 2002 and 2016, he served as a senior physician diplomat at the U.S. Department of State, mostly overseas, including five years in Moscow, in Russia. Both before and after his U.S. government service, he has published and lectured about leadership profiles of leaders, such as Kim Jong-un, Vladimir Putin, and Xi Jinping. His work has been published in The Hill, The Cipher Brief, The Diplomat, and the Journal of the American Academy of Psychiatry and the Law, and 38 North. He has presented his work in a variety of academic and U.S. government settings and has been interviewed by NPR, CNN, and Background Briefing. Ken, it's a delight to have you here today. We are really excited for this conversation. Thank you for being with us. Thank you very much, uh, Andre and Ryan. I'm really honored to be on your podcast. Very excited about it and excited to share ideas with you and with your listeners. Uh, we're, we're, once we get started, we're going to dive into a lot of different areas. But I'd like to also honor my, fr- my friend and mentor, the late Dr. Jerry Post, a psychiatrist who really invented this discipline as we know it uh, when he worked at the CIA from 1965 to 1986, and thereafter at George Washington University for the next uh, 32 years. He passed away from COVID uh, last fall. He's really the founder of this field and is a, was a dear friend and mentor, mentor to me and has mentored dozens, if not more, of, of psychiatrists, psychologists, and intelligence analysts in the national security space and in academia. So I want to honor, pay homage to him and start our podcast on that foot. Thank you. And what a fantastic way to kind of kick this off, right? His his work will forever live on, certainly with, you know, the countless things he's written, the developments in this field, as well as the people he's mentored like yourself. And so thank you for kicking off the podcast that way. Uh, so Ken, let's start off with a discussion about what it is that you actually do. As we mentioned in the intro, you're an expert in the field of leadership analysis. You've worked in and out of the U.S. government. But what exactly is leadership analysis and how did it actually develop? Leadership analysis has a fascinating history. Uh, it really started during World War II uh, with the OSS when General Bill Donovan, who was the director of the OSS uh, around 1942, late 1942, w- realized that the war was turning and they wanted to have an understanding of uh, Adolf Hitler's psyche and leadership style and how Hitler would react to the to the impending, as they saw it, uh, loss of the war. So he asked Dr. Walter Langer, who was a friend of his and a, a psychoanalyst affiliated with Harvard University Medical School, to develop a team and draw up a profile of Hitler for the OSS. So that's what that's what Walter Langer did over the next year. And, and had a multidisciplinary team of, of physicians, intelligence analysts, linguists, uh, historians, psychologists, and they put together a profile which, which was really still as a classic in its time. And it was declassified in the early 70s, and it's available on, on, you can buy it online. It's called The Mind of Adolf Hitler. And that really set the standard for the field as we know it today. So, Ken, uh, besides Adolf Hitler, are there any other historical usages of leadership profiles that come to mind, uh, certainly that have helped sort of underlie perhaps certain summits, certain negotiations, or certain big events in history? Yes, I, that's a wonderful question. I think, I think the best way to answer it is to cite the work of Dr. Gerald Post at the CIA, who really kind of founded the modern version of this field as we know it. It really a remarkable career that he had, and he was hired straight out of residency, uh, which is which is really even more remarkable. And asked by the CIA to develop and build a unit that would provide leadership profiles for national security policymakers, including up to the level of the president, the vice president, secretary of state, secretary of defense, director of the CIA, and and other people in that uh, community. And what, what he did is he built a, a multidisciplinary team 
following the model of Dr. Langer with with a with a group of psychologists, anthropologists, physicians, uh, leadership analysts, linguists, other types of analysts to gather all the different types of data that go into a leadership profile. And these profiles were developed for the intelligence community. The most famous use of of these profiles, uh, probably the high point of Dr. Post's career in the government, was the famous Camp David profiles of Menachem Begin, Prime Minister of Israel, and, and Anwar Sadat, the leader of Egypt, to help President Carter understand their psychology and their leadership style in framing the the successful Camp David Accords. And in his book, Keeping Faith, President Carter highlighted the importance of Dr. Post's profiles in helping him understand their leadership and how to frame a successful negotiation. So that's really, that's a, that's a pretty crystal clear historic example of the kind that you've uh, asked for. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite fascinating that these these policymakers are using leadership profiles just because, I mean, when you look at it, it certainly makes sense that foreign leaders want to understand their counterparts. U.S. leaders want to understand their foreign counterparts. And so, Ken, in your career in the U.S. government, uh, how heavily did uh, the senior officials actually rely on these profiles? I know that you uh, spent time at the U.S. embassy uh, in Russia. And so were, were you actually in, in developing profiles or in, I guess, giving advice to the, the senior leadership, was there uh, a concentrated effort by senior officials to actually look to the work of psychiatrists and regional medical officers and helping understand leaders? Uh, y- yes and no. My duties when I was uh, in the government did not include leadership analysis, but it's a field I kept up with because I was doing other, other clinical things and, and strategic consultation to senior leadership, but I kept up with the field very avidly. But when I when I got out of government and I've 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 given lectures to government, I can share with you and your audience that that there's a a very high demand, I think, for this type of of nuance and understanding that goes beyond the mere biographical facts that are known about a leader, but trying to understand exactly, as you pointed out, their psychology, their leadership intention, their leadership style. How they make decisions, who they trust, uh, trying to make predictions, and you're trying to mitigate risk, especially when you're in high-level negotiations with leaders such as Vladimir Putin of Russia, or Xi Jinping of China, or Kim Jong Un, or Bashar al-Assad, or Erdogan. Our leaders uh, want to have all the information they can to both mitigate risk and give them an edge in negotiations. So that's. That's really a domain where where this kind of analysis has stood the test of time. And the fact of the matter is the intelligence community still has people like me in the government that do this kind of work and, and teams that do this kind of work. And the fact that they do that and are willing to devote uh, a fair amount of resources to it, I think, is a testament to its lasting importance. So I have a bunch of questions, really, about this and sort of how it applies to so many of these individual leaders that we now see both in the current and in the past. But before we dig into that, I want to sort of talk to you more specifically about how you actually develop leadership profiles. So we have this context that you've provided us, right? And uh, basically, when you're creating these leadership profiles, is it an individual effort? Is it a team effort? Are psychologists and psychiatrists the primary contributors, or are other professionals involved as well? I, I can tell you from what I know in the government, it's, a, it's very much a team effort. And while on the medical side, the leadership will be, will be physicians, either internists or, or psychiatrists, it, it's, it's really a team sport. And that's, that's critical. And that, again, follows the model that, that Dr. Post advanced during his time and set forth. In my case, I work individually, but I have I talk to a lot of people who are in that space, if you will, uh, intelligence analysts, uh, historians, political scientists, international relations uh, folks, um, people who are in and out of the government, uh, other other medical colleagues to sort of get a fresh 
often a fresh set of eyes to make sure that that a profile doesn't have the biases that could hinder its uh, application and and utility. Most of the work in the government, as well as my work, all of my work in this space is unclassified or what what is called open source. Uh, Fortunately, it's a lot easier now than it was when I started doing this work with Dr. Post in the mid-90s. Then getting uh, getting access to uh, obscure materials was very difficult. Today, thanks to the internet, it's much easier. But it, it really requires inputs from many different people to eliminate uh, a variety of different types of biases that can bedevil not only intelligence analysts, but in this particular more narrow space, leadership analysts. The issue of bias is a, a broader issue in intelligence collection and analysis writ large. And so it certainly makes sense that you know, when you're trying to deal with creating leadership profiles, you're, you're dealing with where this information is coming from uh, and the, the, you know, how, the veracity of the information. And so can I guess in a similar vein, what type of information do you need to create an adequate profile? Certainly the biographical elements are, are important, but what else is included? Can you discuss physical and mental health or those important aspects of it? Really, how do you, I guess, paint an accurate picture of a leader? You're you're gonna you're gonna rely on a variety of sources, primary source accounts, which would be writings of the leader, interviews that the leader is given, speeches, um, YouTube videos, social media. Uh, that certainly is is probably still the most useful information. Now, even that has its biases. Many speeches that leaders give are written by speechwriters or teams of speechwriters. But for example, in the case of uh, uh, President Xi Jinping of China, there's a fascinating interview that he gave in 2000 before he was well known. And often these type of things that are less filtered or less censored, if you will, are even even have a greater valence uh, for an intelligence analyst. So use that kind of data. Then you have secondary source data, which is uh, other writings about the leader, including interviews or writings by people who have met the leader. I've, I've certainly tried to be comprehensive in my work in that regard, and I've actually talked to people who've met several of the leaders who I've profiled uh, to sort of get get a take of am I am I am I off the track here? Am I am I in the right space? Am I getting it? Uh, that sort of uh, feeling because it's it's easy to be wrong. It's easy to have too much hubris and and uh, then that's not really helpful. The The other thing is, even the risk when you put all the experts together and get all these pieces, you can still be wrong. You can get a kind of groupthink bias that creeps in. So you have to always be mindful of that and take a step back. The other key thing that, that and then you have the medical data that you've cited, you're going to try to get whatever medical history you can from open sources, uh, analysis of gait, video, speech analysis, things like that, and use epidemiologic data to look at a leader's age group and their, and their known risk factors to make educated guesses about what their risk factors might be. Now, that's complicated. You're going from a group epidemiology in the case of trying to understand, for example, Kim Jong-un's risks of heart disease and, and stroke, but you can use predictive uh, medical software to make relatively educated guesses based on some known risk factors. So you had mentioned an interview that Xi Jinping gave in 2000 when he was relatively unknown. So when you're constructing these leadership profiles and you're sort of having to construct these profiles on leaders who are sort of fresh on the scene, brand new faces, like, for example, Vladimir Putin in 1999, like right as he was becoming president, right before Yeltsin resigned. How how much information are you actually able to gather that isn't necessarily like publicly available? Like, say, Putin didn't give too many speeches and so on. We don't have we don't know too much about him. How are you able to construct a leadership profile for someone who's that brand new? It's much more difficult with with Putin. One of the things that made it easier with Putin is in t- in early 2000, right around the time when he became president, when he won the election, he published a book that was translated into English the same year 
called First Person. I've read it many times in English and in Russian. So that's a treasure trove of, of data of how the leader sees himself and his colleagues and the issues that are important to the leader. In Putin's case, it was, it was uh, fortuitous that, that early on there was a lot of material available. And if you read it carefully, it's, it's still full of, of jewels and diamonds. With, with another leader, for example, with Xi Jinping, that 2000 interview, which, which was pretty obscure and hard to get, it's easy to get now, but it wasn't easy to get until a couple of years ago. Uh, a China analyst um, from the intelligence community sent it to me. Uh, that, that also I found fascinating because it's a fairly lengthy interview. Uh, but with Kim Jong-un, it was very challenging because Kim Jong-un had never met a, a foreign leader that we're aware of until 2018. And the only uh, outsider he had met that, we, that our government and intelligence community could talk to who had spent time with him was the famous basketball star Dennis Rodman. So with, with Kim Jong-un, it, it was much more difficult. and. The one has to be careful not to run away with biases and and epithets and labels that can be just flat out wrong. Um, as you know from the media, these leaders get called a lot of names: psycho, thug, dictator. In this type of analysis, that's really not helpful. And I think the other thing one needs a lot, and perhaps uh, psychiatrists and psychologists bring a unique perspective. We're not the only ones that have it, but. It's part of our training is to develop empathy in understanding uh, difficult people. And, and in this case, leaders who've done horrible things. These are all the leaders we've talked about are ruthless. Um, in some cases, have done barbaric and horrible things. And one has to sort of put aside one's own emotions and feelings and try to understand them uh, through a different prism. If, if I could add one other thing, when when Dr. Post and I published a profile of Radovan Karadzic uh, back in the mid-90s, and we had given lectures about Karadzic uh, at the American Psychiatric Association and at the International Society for Political Psychology, colleagues would come up and say, how can you empathize with such an evil, horrible, vicious person who was a psychiatrist, a political leader, and a published poet? I translated his poetry. I speak fluent Serbian. And his poetry was rich with data. But they said, how can you empathize with him? But I actually talked to people who knew Karadzic. And they said he was a nice guy. He was very likable. He was very sociable. He, he interacted with a lot of people in Sarajevo society before the war. So you get different perspectives when you step back from your own biases. It's incredibly important, right? Foreign leaders are, are people as well. And so... Uh, Ken, I'm, I'm curious about uh, the practice uh, looking to the United States, right? How do foreign countries kind of address leadership analysis? Is it a similar practice? Or are there similar uh, methodologies done by maybe, say, you know, Russia and, and their intelligence community? Do they have profiles of, you know, now President uh, Biden or maybe previously Presidents Obama and Trump? Absolutely. Uh, it goes without saying that they have people who use the same methodology that, that we use. It's, it's interesting because they, the, they're aware of my work. My work has been, uh, I've been, one of the profiles I published of uh, President Putin of Russia a couple of years ago was translated into Russian and they edited it and cut out the parts they didn't like and added some pictures. And, and the subtitle, I think, was, uh, American psychiatrists praise Putin's leadership style, something like that. I'm paraphrasing the Russian. So they they have their own uses of of profiling, uh, both to highlight their own leaders and and Chinese government officials have have read have read my work on Xi, and the North Koreans quoted me on their state website. So I know they're reading this stuff. Now, do they have? Do they have folks that do what people like me do? Absolutely. They, they would want to have the same edge in negotiations or in diplomacy or in strategic long-term thinking, which, uh, frankly, I, I, I think one should praise the North Koreans, Russians, and Chinese. They excel at long-term strategy, what we call playing the long game. So they have, they have 
experienced people that are going to be doing the same thing that we do. Uh, the North Koreans are very well informed, contrary to often popular media opinion. They read everything that's written about uh, about Chairman Kim Jong Un. So, where do you see the future of this field sort of going now that we have, you know, so many of these political figures on social media? Their tweets, their Facebook posts, and so on are easily much more accessible. We have, uh, you know, the internet with significantly more information just available, artificial intelligence, and so on. So, does this make the field and the work associated with the field easier, or does it in some ways make it harder? Both. I, I think it's different. I think there's a value, uh, there's going to be clear value added with novel technologies like um, artificial artificial intelligence. Uh, I have a friend, Brian Raymond, who's a, a former intelligence analyst with the CIA, who's the vice president for Primer uh, AI. They have a lot of contracts with the government. They use natural language processing to extricate materials in any language about a given leader and can create a biographical profile in seconds, a one-page profile. And I, I've seen this technology demonstrated by Brian Raymond. It's very impressive. So we're going to see more of that as those technologies get better. I, I do think that the you still, you still need the human factor. Uh, you still need a, a human analyst to look at that data. You need people who have met the leader. Uh, in, in our case now, we know more about Kim Jong-un because uh, various people such as President Trump and his delegations, then Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, uh, uh, Andy Kim, who was the senior uh, manager for the North Korean account at the CIA, met with Kim Jong-un multiple times in 2018 and 2019. We have people that have met with President Putin of Russia many times. Uh, President Biden himself has met with uh, President Putin when I was based in Moscow in 2011. He uh, had a meeting with Putin at that time and then came to the embassy and gave a talk to our diplomats there. Uh, he's met with Xi Jinping both when she was vice president and later in 2013 when she was president. So th those inputs from people who've met them are also very helpful because they can help reframe uh, the data, but it's a constant analytic process. The last thing I'll say that about the human factor, it's sort of like radiology. AI now can 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 get to where they can read an X-ray or an MRI as accurately, almost as accurately as a radiologist. And that that those algorithms in deep learning is only going to improve. But if you were getting a, a scan that you had to make a decision whether or not you have cancer and need surgery, you still want a radiologist to look at it. So that's the analogy I would use with leadership analysis. You still need the human factor. You still need a human factor. I think that's a good takeaway. And so, Ken, I'd, I'd like to kind of dig in to world leaders now. We, we've talked about Vladimir Putin. Uh, and so there's many, many people, whether they're inside government or outside of government, that dedicate their time to understanding Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. Uh, he is the former KGB agent, seemingly came out of nowhere and has now led Russia for over 20 years. And Ken, you served in Russia. Uh, you've done a lot of work on Vladimir Putin. And so who is President Vladimir Putin and how did he become the leader that he is today? Vladimir Putin is a very, very impressive leader. And in spite of, of mistakes that he's made, in my opinion, I, I think uh, Russian history will judge him kindly overall, because he 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 basically restored Russia's greatness out of the doldrums of the 90s after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. While he apparently came from out of nowhere, in hindsight, that's not really the case. He was helped along within the bureaucracy, both with the KGB and and the uh, and when he worked for uh, Sobchak in St. Petersburg, and then later migrated to a variety of leadership positions in the, in the Kremlin uh, in the mid to late 90s, uh, where he was head of the FSB, he was prime minister, and he was uh, a manager for several Kremlin departments before that. He, his ability to move up fairly se seamlessly and bypass other more 
senior and impressive figures like Yevgeny Primakov, the former foreign minister and former director of the SVR, is, is in hindsight also quite impressive. I think uh, Vladimir Putin has a skill set that he brought to it of, of being a, a really outstanding intelligence officer, even though his, he, he retired at the rank of lieutenant colonel. His skill set goes beyond that. Um, his, his knowledge of German and German culture is superb. Uh, it's deep. Uh, when he gave a speech to the Bundestag in 2001 in German, it, it's really stirring to watch. He, he brought, you know, a thousand members, uh, I mean, several hundred members of the Bundestag to their feet in a roaring standing ovation with his, with his stirring and beautiful language. So I think his his skill set. He says, "I'm an expert in human relations," and and his diplomatic and linguistic and intelligence officer skills are a rare combo. And then you add his other personal side, his his role as a martial artist in that kind of uh, a, a, a judo, uh, an eighth dan in judo, and you get a very interesting uh, personality. Uh, I think he's a remarkable. Leader, albeit uh, at times a destructive and disruptive leader, but still very remarkable and a formidable adversary. So, did we get Putin wrong? I mean, there are so many conceptions of Vladimir Putin. I feel like Western analysts have one view, and then Russia and the non Western analysts might typically take another. So, so, as someone like you know, as you have served in Russia, for a few years, where do you stand? Is Putin actually cold? Is he a calculated tactician? Or is he an opportunist who found himself in the right place at the right time? This is where we got him wrong. The answer is both. At times, he's he's shown a lot of tactical flexibility in, in what he does. And he certainly was, was an opportunist. He found himself at the right place at the right time and was able to uh, extrapolate from that and leverage that into more and more successes. But I think he also, I think he's a deep strategist. And one of his long-term strategic goals, and I think we missed this, was the revanchism and the desire to, as we would put it tritely today, make Russia great again. But in Vladimir Putin's mind, to restore Russia's greatness. And I think part of where we can go wrong is when when our a lot of our sources that we rely on in diplomacy often are a certain um, section of society, the elites. And we have to be careful not to over-rely on elites because then we can get it wrong. When, when I was in Russia, I traveled constantly all over the former Soviet Union and Russia, the consulates for my job. So I talked to Russians all the time, the, the motor pool drivers, the taxi drivers. They like to talk. I'm fluent in Russian. So once they figure that out, they ask questions. We talk. We banter. And I think they, uh, the, the guy in the street for a long time uh, saw uh, resonated with that aspect of Vladimir Putin, of making them feel proud uh, to be Russian. And I think we miss that in the 2000s and even in the last decade. There may be, um, from the recent demonstrations, certainly some fatigue with Putinism. And I think some of that's generational because a lot of the marchers in the cities throughout the uh, Russian Federation are young people who were, they were children or toddlers when Vladimir Putin came to power in 2000. Well, I'm glad you brought up the recent protests in Russia because I'd love to get your assessment on Putin's current state of mind. Uh, there's domestic pressure, uh, both at home and abroad. You've had the imprisonment of opposition politician, politician Alexei Navalny. We've talked about him a lot on the podcast. You have economic turmoil and social, social turmoil because of COVID, foreign policy issues, both in the Middle East and the foreign Soviet space. And so given all of these uh, challenges being brought to Putin, um, has he met his match? Is he going to be able to persevere through this? If you were to provide an analysis of Vladimir Putin and how he's able to deal with adversity, uh, what would you say? Putin is remarkably resilient. And while it's tempting for uh, our analysts, both academics such as myself and government, to think Putin is finally done, he's met his match, to borrow your words, I'm not sure that's the case. I think 
while his popularity has dropped into the 50% range, most American politicians would give their left arm for those numbers. Uh, he, he's dropped from 75 to 85, you know, after the uh, Crimean uh, takeover in 2014. But I think there's still a lot of people in Russia that fear there, there's no alternative to Putin and they fear the chaos or return to the chaos of the 90s if Putin were to not be in power. So I think there's that aspect of it. I think in terms of Navalny, uh, I don't think Navalny uh, is a threat to Putin. Uh, Navalny came on the scene a couple of years before I was last posted there, about 10 years ago. And he's he's a very popular person and a very competent uh, uh, blogger and activist in that. But and I think I think it was tragic and foolish for the FSB to to kill Navalny, and I'm glad he survived. I I it's not clear that 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 decision was made by Putin, or whether it was the FSB sort of trying to please the czar, and you know, kind of will someone get rid of this meddlesome priest type of thing. But the the key point is that uh, that people miss is that. When Navalny returned to Russia, nobody's killing him now. They're not so foolish. Putin won't let that happen. Uh, and I think Navalny will be marginalized uh, by, the, by the Russian media. And they've already put out a lot of stuff in the West of interviews that Navalny has given over the years, highlighting his ethno-nationalism, his racism, and his anti-Semitism. So the, the star and the luster of Navalny may dim a little less brightly. Uh, over time is a possibility. Definitely. And now, Ken, I want to sort of shift gears and talk a bit about the hermit kingdom, Kim Jong-un. So North Korea, it's an incredibly fascinating place, a very secretive place, at least from my view. And uh, its ruling family is even more so fascinating and secretive. It's probably very hard to understand Kim Jong-un without first discussing the great leader and the dear leader, Kim Jong-un's grandfather and father, Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il. So what do we need to know about Kim's family in order to better understand Kim Jong-un? What we we know is that Kim Jong-un is really, uh, in my opinion, he's a very unique uh, North Korean leader. He's more like his grandfather than his father, although he shares the ruthlessness of both. As you know, and as your listeners know, um, he's purged hundreds of officials. Many of them were killed. He had his he had his own uncle, Jang Sung Tak, and regent, if you will, uh, killed. He had his half brother um, killed with a chemical weapon in in the Kuala Lumpur airport. So he's shown the same kind of ruthlessness that Kim Jong Il had, who in 1987 blew up a a, a jetliner the year before the Olympics. Uh, and his and his grandfather, who started the Korean War that led to the death of millions of people and the disruption of the lives of millions more and the ongoing division on the Korean Peninsula. So he shares the ruthlessness. Where he's more like his grandfather is, I see him as a very, he's a more extroverted uh, person like his grandfather versus his father, who is more more introverted, more artistic, more emotional. Kim Jong-un is more like his grandfather, aspirational, a big dreamer. Uh, and I think in, in spite of his current retrenchment because of COVID and the severe economic difficulties that North Korea is currently facing because of both sanctions and last year's t- terrible, tragic floods, but really mostly because of COVID, I, I think he'll bounce back for, from that. And I think he has big dreams of of like his grandfather did of of playing out as a as a force to be reckoned with on the world stage much as he did in 2018 and 2019 where he stood toe to toe as an equal with president trump with president xi with president putin with the prime minister of uh, singapore and and other leaders so ken you're a, you're an academic psychiatrist um and and you certainly know how one's early childhood development impacts, you know, their their being a person, how they interact with others. And so 
Uh, first, I, I guess I want to ask, what do we really know about Kim Jong-un for certain? It seems like there are many uncertainties as to the way he was brought up, how he was schooled, what his family life was like. I, I imagine it was quite a lonely childhood as the as the son of a dictator. And so how do you think that his his childhood development impacted his ability um, to kind of take over the shoes of, fall into the shoes of his father, lead North Korea, and I guess become one of the world's most cruel dictators? I, I think it's a great question. What we do know is that he had a privileged childhood as as the son of the of the of the dear leader. The young leader grew up in privilege, went to elementary schools with children of privilege who were really secluded off from the rest of society. And in and in the in the eighties and early nineties, um, during his middle school years, he spent several years in Switzerland at an international boarding school, where from accounts that we know. Uh, he, uh, he was a, you know, popular, friendly student who loved things that all middle school boys love around the world, video games, basketball, rap music. Uh, by all reports, he wasn't a a particularly diligent student, but we have to wonder as a psychiatrist, I certainly wonder what the impact would be of being away at a boarding school for several years without ever being able to see your parents. When he returned I think his closeness to his father, to Kim Jong-il, kind of grew over time as later he became seen as the favorite and heir apparent, particularly after 2008 when Kim Jong-il suffered his uh, devastating uh, stroke. And, And in 2009 and 2010, we saw the transition, if you will, the preparation for the transition and the grooming of Kim Jong-un to take power. This is really quite striking because in 2009, um, uh, Xi Jinping, one of his first foreign trips as vice president uh, was to Pyongyang where he met with Kim Jong-il. So the Chinese even, they always had an interest in how this transition would play out. So how do we understand the people around Kim Jong-un and obviously around these other dictators? Because sometimes, you know, we see these leaders and either we see them as like, you know, having absolute control. And also sometimes you see them as more figureheads, especially towards the end of their life. For example, like Leonid Brezhnev at the, at like 1981 or 1982. So with Kim Jong-un, like, how do we understand the people around him? Whoops, sorry. How do we understand the people around him? Uh, including his sister? I think the that's a great question. What's interesting about Kim Jong-un is that he, while he has an elite that, that is around him and is loyal, they all have to be on their toes because there are a lot of purges or, or reassignments or demotions, if you will, uh, that we see in the foreign ministry and in the power ministries. The interesting thing is his relationship with his sister, who he trusts immensely. But and she's held a variety of senior leadership roles in the or, or the organization and guidance department, which is kind of the ultimate power ministry within the North Korean government. Those were interestingly positions that Kim Jong Il uh, held when he was being groomed uh, for power you know, during his twenties and thirties. But the other interesting thing is the role of, of the role of women and the visibility of women. We see this with. Uh, Kim Yo-jong. We see this with Ri Sol-ju, his wife, who traveled with him to many of the summits during 19, during uh, 2018, both to China, the summits, the famous September summit with uh, President Moon, where both couples climbed Mount Piktu, which is a very famous symbolic mountain on the uh, North Korean-Chinese border. And so I think the role of women and, and the vice foreign minister, Che Son Wee, and other prominent women, I think he's, that makes him different. In a way, he's, what I think about Kim Jong-un is he's sort of slowly, tra- he's still a dictator, and he will be, but he's, and he's very authoritarian, but he's, he's transitioning to a more modern leadership style. There are certainly uh, elements that one can follow, and North Korea watchers do, where he's delegating more. Uh, North Korea is way too complex a country for one person to make every single decision. It just doesn't work. And I think Kim Jong-un knows that. 
So Kana, I'm glad you brought up the, this transition in Kim Jong-un's leadership style. And this kind of gets me thinking about uh, the leadership style of Chinese President Xi Jinping. Uh, there's little doubt that China is the greatest geopolitical threat facing the United States at the present moment. China is an autocratic country. Uh, President Xi has significant power uh, within the country, has great influence over the Chinese Communist Party. And so I'd love to kind of walk through his leadership profile. Uh, And so, Ken, who is Xi Jinping and how has his upbringing and experiences impacted his leadership style and overall worldview? That's a great question. I'd like to start by saying that Xi Jinping is in my mind, and it pains me to say this as, as an American and as a patriotic American, probably the most formidable leader in the world today. Uh, he, he grew up as a child of privilege. His father was one of the founders of modern China in the group of eight surrounding Mao and the Long March, and was one of the youngest vice ministers in the early to mid-50s. So she grew up in privilege, but then in the mid-60s, uh, when the Cultural Revolution began, uh, his father was purged, and she himself, then a teenager, uh, a 14-year-old was arrested by the Red Guards and threatened with execution. And this is where you really start to understand his psyche. Uh, in that famous interview he gave, he said the Red Guards held a gun to his head and said, we could execute you a hundred times. He said, if you're going to execute me, once is enough, basically, to paraphrase. You don't need a hundred. And uh, they they then let him go and sent him away to the remote countryside where he uh, lived among peasants for eight eight years, digging latrines and, and in a life of hardship, again, away from family. He didn't see his father and mother for many, many, many years until he returned to Beijing uh, after uh, the Cultural Revolution had started to wind down toward the time when Mao died. So I think that, that and he's spoken of that time in the countryside as like sharpening a knife on a stone in the interview he gave. Uh, of strengthening his character. And he said, whenever he looks at difficult situations in his political life, he always goes back to his roots in the countryside and learning from the people. So I think that the the story is compelling. And Xi's ability to weave his personal narrative with a political narrative of the the Chinese dream of rejuvenation of, of the Chinese people, along with the Confucian and other nationalist dreams and the communist party dream is what makes him formidable and his achievements. Are there any past Chinese leaders that Xi is similar to, I guess? Like, is he similar to Mao? Is he similar to uh, Zhou Enlai, uh, Deng Xiaoping, or any since? One of the, uh, I'm drawing a blank on who said this. It may have been Evan Osnos or Kurt Campbell. But um, one of the profiles that I had read, they said he he talks like he 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 talks like uh, Deng, but walks like Mao. I think he has mixtures of both. Certainly, the authoritarianism of both leaders, and and I think he's more ideological than than Deng was. Although again, Deng's prag- pragmatism shouldn't hide the fact that he was uh, as ideological as any of them. He just laid it over with pragmatism. I think she uh, has a mixture of both pragmatism and uh, and 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 hardcore ideology and belief in the party. That I think the implicit question that you're asking is, what does that make him do moving forward? The the one of the things that analysts have talked about with Xi Jinping is this idea of of overreach or of pushing boundaries uh, of being a disruptor. I don't see him as a disruptor in that sense, in in the way that perhaps many people see Vladimir Putin. Uh, I think she will be seen as a disruptor, but within a framework where China wants to work with a rules-based framework, but where they have more influence over the rules or, frankly, de facto make the rules. So I don't think they're trying to tear down the framework. They just want to adapt it to their own strategic needs. And she has been very successful in doing that so far, remarkably successful. I think that's a very good point. I mean, China, you know, despite what many analysts say, they do in large part stay within this rules-based system developed by the West. 
Uh, and so I'm curious, Ken, how do you think she views the United States? Uh, does he view the United States as kind of the the dying world power, um, or one that is you know going to compete with him to the bitter end? That's a that's that's the sixty four thousand dollar question here. I think she, in the last couple years, certainly um, since he's come to power during both the Obama and Trump presidencies, and and now at risk of doing the same with the Biden presidency, has I think that's where he's made a strategic error. I think he's underestimated the United States, and that's easy to do. That's a narrative that fits into a lot of the rising China narrative. The the China dream is a slogan that he borrowed from two PLA writer, uh, PLA colonels, uh, People's Liberation Army colonels who were at think tanks who wrote the book, the, the Chinese Dream, around 2010 is when it was translated into English. He just borrowed that narrative and, and widened it and made it even more appealing with his soaring rhetoric and, and, and the emotional appeals that it has. But I think, I think the risk isn't so much overreach as in the South China Sea or, or Xinjiang or what he's done with Hong Kong and what he may do with Taiwan. I, I think the real risk is that he underestimates America's resilience and, and its history and its culture. Even though he's well-informed, many of the people around him in the Politburo Standing Committee have studied in the United States and lived here. I think they miss that piece about our kind of exceptionalism, which is not a popular word, but I believe in it. And I think the risk, if you miss that, you can be wrong from a Chinese point of view. Uh, and I think they, they, they misread President Trump and his uh, doggedness in the trade talks and, and, and his resilience. But the real misreading wasn't just of, of President Trump, but of of the American people and of now the bipartisan support for strong pushback uh, against uh, China's rise, uh, where people disagree as on strategies and tactics, but not the general idea that we should somehow push back. So Ken, as we now close out this interview, I wanted to ask one last question on whether there are any global leaders in your view that public perception is underestimating but in your view, are going to be, I guess, in the public's perspective, unexpectedly strong, unexpectedly like a force to be reckoned with? That's a, that's a good question, because the leaders we've talked about uh, have, have been around for some time. One of the challenges in China and Russia is that neither Xi nor Putin, and certainly North Korea, there are no other leaders emerging on the horizon should these leaders uh, pass away, for example, get an illness, die of COVID, I hate to say it in this day and age, even though they're all very careful. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that. I, I'd like to say that I do, but I really don't. I think, I think we need uh, leaders with uh, a different type of a larger, broader vision and skill set similar to our adversaries in order to uh, cope better with our adversaries. We need leaders in the West that can lead and adopt a whole-of-government approach. And I think that's where she has excelled uh, most of all, we, which means to understand she to compete with the rising China, we can't just get it right in the national security space. We have to be able to um, sell this kind of doctrine to the American people, to the American voter, and to our allies, both in Asia and in Europe. And that's a huge challenge because of our own divisions in the country. So I think that the leader will be the one who can, who can truly unite a very divided country and restore America, therefore, thereby to uh, a true leadership role in the West. And I guess I want to sneak in actually one last follow-up. So we talked about these three leaders, Putin, Xi, and Kim. Are there any overarching trends that are common amongst all of them that have made them good at what they do? And when I say good at what they do, like perhaps it's just being a dictator. It's perhaps maintaining that sense of authoritarianism and that ironclad control. 
What are the common trends that make them good at this? I, I think I think what makes them good is is they're good in spite of their authoritarianism. And and my my work really looks more at governance outcomes and less at psychology. But they certainly are all um, highly intelligent, charismatic leaders, uh, and they've been able to throughout their careers at different times create a nar- a personal narrative uh, that that can attract the elites in their country, and in some cases more than the elite, to to buy into their leadership style. It's a kind of social contract that certainly Putin. It's weaker now, but he has it and has had it in the past. Xi Jinping has it. And even de facto, even a dictator like North Korea's Kim Jong-un has it, which is if if he can't do the job, he won't last long as a leader. And I think that's true of Xi and Putin as well. Uh, as a friend of mine uh, uh, said, uh, Xi, Xi knows he started in the penthouse, he went to the outhouse, and if he fails in what he's doing now, he's going to go to the jailhouse, which is what has happened to people that he purged like like Beaujolais uh, is the case in point. Exactly. Yeah. And, and with that, I think that is a perfect way to close out this fascinating interview. Uh, Ken, thank you very much for joining us today. Your, your insights and analyses are, are certainly very, very useful in understanding the state of the world and understanding these crucial world leaders. And so uh, this has been a, a very unique conversation and one that we're very excited to have had just because this field, that being leadership analysis, is not widely discussed, but is ever so important. And so once again, Ken, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really honored and pleased to be on your show. And I'd like to also thank the, the people who, who helped my work by reading it and discussing it with me, the editors of 38 North, The Hill, uh, The Diplomat, and The Cipher Brief, who have published my work. Without them, I wouldn't be able to have a readership. So I'm very grateful. And to the George Bush um, Foundation for U.S.-China Relations, which, re- which recently published a monograph on this topic. So I'm very grateful. Thank you very much. Absolutely. And we will have Ken's work linked in the episode description for all of you listening to check out. I highly encourage it. Ken, thank you. Stay well. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. To hear other fascinating conversations, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media at Burnbag Pod. Thank you for listening. This is the Burnbag Podcast. 